Hail, and well met, traveler. Welcome to Threat Dice, a podcast about tabletop role-playing games, storytelling, and the vagaries of the dice. I'm your host, Kylan Wiggin. I am one-third of the team at Tumble Die Games, a young company developing a new hybrid storytelling RPG called Trove. We believe in the power of story, and the goal of Trove is to simulate the arc and tension of a three-act story within the framework of a tabletop RPG. You can find out more at www.tumbledie.com, or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, at TumbleDie, or Instagram. Before we get started today, I have a quick announcement. Since both Christmas and New Year's Day fall on Friday this year, and that's the day we chose for our weekly episode releases, I've decided to give me a couple weeks off and let everyone enjoy their holidays. It's going to be tough enough this year doing Christmas and New Year's celebrations remotely. So we'll be off on December 25th and January 1st, returning with new episodes on January 8th. And with any luck, looking forward to a new year full of better things than 2020. I wish all you listeners out there a happy, warm, and healthy holiday season. We have a new review on iTunes.ca. Moach987 says, I need more Falcon's Cry. Although I have really enjoyed all of the episodes I have heard so far, my favorite ones are the Falcon's Cry episodes, where the host walks us through a story using his new system. It is engaging, from the heart, and well-produced. Looking forward to hearing more. Thank you so much for listening, Moch987. We've got more live play coming up in the near future, so stay tuned. And so sorry it took so long for us to find you. It's actually really tough to figure out all the places to look for these wonderful reviews. Today, following on from last week's discussion about the heroine's journey, if you haven't listened to the December 4th episode, go back and check it out. But of course, no background is necessary for discussion episodes of Threat Dice. I'd like to spend some time talking about one of the most important features of our tabletop RPGs, non-player characters. The NPCs that make up the world around the player characters are crucial to making the world come alive for them. Faceless crowds and nameless enemies don't do much for immersion, and I try to be as immersive a storyteller as I possibly can be when I'm running games, and when I'm playing them, honestly. I like to be in character, in the story, as much as possible. The jokes and the table talk are necessary parts of the experience, but I crave the story, and so that's why I come to the table. Which means that, as a GM, making interesting and recurring NPCs for my players and their characters to encounter, is critical. And I don't always succeed to the heights that I would like to. None of us do, really. But this is an area that I am actively trying to improve. As I've mentioned before, I've been playing D&D for mm, coming up on 30 years now, and I've been DMing for about 25 of those. But in truth, It was the advent of Critical Role that really got me thinking about my NPCs. Watching Matt Mercer bring even incidental characters to life really inspired me in a way that I hadn't felt before. 
I'd always considered NPCs important, but had never really taken the time to consider how they could be more than just descriptions of someone saying something. Part of my inhibition is that I am naturally sort of repressed as a personality. Getting on the microphone for these podcasts is really good for me because it makes me stretch. But doing voices, inhabiting characters, is something I always wanted to do, but have never really done. When I was young, I wanted to get into acting, but I have trouble letting go of my own embarrassment enough to actually go and put myself out there. As I grew older, I dreamed of being a voice actor, but an inner voice always stops me from trying things because I am desperately afraid of it. Doing the character lines for Falcon's Cry was one of the toughest things I've ever done because it involved actually putting it out there in the world and taking a risk. So here I am at 35 and doing voices for my friends in my tabletop RPGs, at least some of the time, and that helps a bit. Before we go too much farther, I'm not here to tell you how to act out your NPCs better. I am the wrong vessel for that. It's also not by any means necessary to be a game master. You can absolutely play NPCs as though you were reading from a novel or even from a summary. So-and-so the such-and-such tells you X, Y, and Z is 100% a valid way to play as a game master. I have met players who even prefer that. Because I have a very tiny, very repressed acting bug. (laughs) I want to be the type of DM who embodies my NPCs more, but it is not necessary. The question then becomes, what is necessary? What makes for strong NPCs that help define the world around the characters, inspire sympathy and empathy in fictional creations, and cause your players to genuinely go out of their way to help these invisible story people who don't really exist? That's what we're going to focus on. Regardless of how they are portrayed by the Game Master, Strong NPCs are crucial ways to guide and inspire your players. Here's how I go about it, and maybe you'll find something interesting here for yourself. In my experience, there are really two types of NPCs. The first are the incidental type. These come along out of a choice your players make. They need to talk to a vendor, or they want to seek out some information, or something along those lines. It requires that you come up with someone on the spot, and in general, it's a transactional sort of thing. These NPCs usually don't have to be super deeply developed, because they are a passing interaction, at best. Now, sometimes, and by sometimes I mean quite frequently, if the PCs stay in one location for a longer period of time, these incidental NPCs may grow into something more important. A weapon vendor could be visited multiple times, and each time, if you have players inclined toward interacting with the world, and the GM is willing to encourage it, more might be revealed about them. That vendor might get a name, a family, and maybe even a problem that they would love to have the PCs help them solve. In fact, this is a great way to get players more invested in the secondary world of the game. 
By revealing depth to things that are only passed at first on the surface, it gives the feeling of a world that lives and exists outside of what they can see. I have mentioned before that the passing of time can be a very important tool for immersion. If the game world is static, like, say, Azeroth in World of Warcraft, where the NPCs always spout the same lines, and folk line up for miles to complete the same quest over and over again. It damages the feeling of a living world. It makes everything feel sort of plastic, like the flimsy sets on old-timey TV shows, like one little breath could knock down all of the scenery and reveal the soundstage beneath. The march of time, and the PC's choices irrevocably changing the game world, for good or for ill, help lend a feeling of realism to the game. When a choice has consequences, good or bad, and cannot be undone, it reminds them that there is weight to their choices. So with incidental NPCs, by allowing them to develop over time, you can contribute to that feeling. If the first time the players meet the weaponsmith and buy a new blade or two, the GM throws out that the smith's wife just welcomed a new baby. That immediately grounds the world in reality. Normal things are happening. Maybe the smith's son has just earned his first knife. Or maybe the middle-aged town clerk has just seen his daughter march off to war. These are things that a savvy GM can keep notes on, and knowing when the PCs might be coming back that way, have updates ready for them. The baby's just cut her first tooth. The boy learned a valuable lesson when he lost the tip of his finger in a knife accident. The clerk has a scroll on his desk tied with the red ribbon of a war update, but it's untouched because he's terrified to know what's inside. Adding these human details to even the most incidental of NPCs can go a long way to making the game world feel more real. Small talk is one of the foundational aspects of human social life. It's why, in some video games, and The Witcher 3 springs to mind, the incidental conversations around the player make the world feel grounded. Well, the first time you hear it, anyway. When you come back after several long adventures, and the NPCs are repeating the same two conversations over and over again, that actually detracts, for me, from that feeling of immersion. But tabletop GMs don't have to settle for pre-programmed lines that get delivered by our NPCs based on a random algorithm or a timer. We don't have to pay an enormous cast of voice actors, though it might be nice. The GM is the voice of the world, and, in my opinion, should communicate that world as much through NPC dialogue as through exposition whenever possible. So that, I think, is one way that we can help those incidental NPCs to feel more real. If the players will never come back to the place they're at, it's a throwaway detail that doesn't matter. It just serves as grounding. But if they're in a place that they'll be spending a lot of time at, a hub of some kind, or if they're traveling there and back again, proper note-taking on the part of the GM can really lend something amazing to the world with just a few small details. So what about the other kind of NPC, then? Well, the other side of the incidental NPC is the planned encounter. These NPCs are the bread and butter of your game world. They are the ones that need their own distinct voice, whether the GM speaks directly with that voice or whether the GM only describes it. These NPCs need their own lens on the world, 
their own drives and goals. These may align with the PCs, or they may conflict, but if an NPC is going to play an important role in the story, whether as ally or antagonist, they, in my opinion, need to be more than just a cardboard cutout. When I'm getting started on a new location, the first thing I do is identify a small group of critical NPCs that may play important roles. These may include people in charge of various important things or places, people that your PCs may have interactions with more than once, and for various reasons. If you're talking about a fantasy setting, a town, good NPCs to identify are the person in charge, the captain or leader of the guards and soldiers, a key information broker, maybe an innkeeper, and leaders of any major factions in town that might have importance to the task or quest that the PCs are in that place to work on. Is there a local mining co-op whose leader has some level of importance in town? What about the local chief of the Traders Guild? For the most part, people in charge of things are good to plan out. It's entirely possible that in the course of interacting with NPCs that the GM will have to come up with a few incidentals. But the nice thing about NPC design is that, if you do it right, it's basically fire and forget. If you design an NPC so that you know what's important to them, what drives them, and what lines they are or are not willing to cross, you only have to refer back to your notes when they come up again in the course of the game. I am a very visual person, so when I create an NPC, one of the things I really like to do is make liberal use of Google Images and Pinterest. Once I have a general idea of what I'm looking for, a working-class person, a guardsman in uniform, or an officer aboard a starship. I like to go diving for things in that vein, and just download as many as I can. I've actually been collecting character art of different genres and ancestries for a few years now, and I have a pretty decent repository that I can refer back to whenever I need to create a new character. If you don't have a collection like this yet, I would encourage you to start one. Even as a player, if you're at all like me, and like to think up lots of character ideas? Whenever you're thinking about it, just go searching for the kind of thing you want to visualize. There are so many amazing artists out there that can give you inspiration for things you might never have expected. And then, once you actually know what you like, you might just feel the urge to pay an artist to commission you something for a crucial character. But that's neither here nor there. So once I know what I need, and I've found a really great piece of art, that helps me focus my mind on what I'm working on, then I can really start developing the key points of the NPC. During my exploration of Zweihander earlier this year, I discovered something in their Mangosh sourcebook that I really feel should be GMing 101 when it comes to NPCs. They have a system for developing non-player characters that I feel is just brilliant, and I really don't want to steal their thunder by just explaining it in my podcast. Without taking away too much from the book, which I encourage you to buy, if only for the section on creating monsters and NPCs, it's worth it for that alone, and when you add the section on running conspiracies, it becomes double the value. They use a method which determines the NPC's basic description, name, age, ancestry, and gender, height, weight, and general appearance, manner of dress, social class, and two distinguishing marks, their archetype, which is game-specific. And then perhaps the most important part, which is their drive and alignment. 
Now for Zweihander, alignment is just order or chaos, so that's not necessarily useful for all games. But the combination of drive and alignment tells you a lot about the motivations of an NPC. For example, if an NPC in Zweihander is driven by, let's say, legacy, meaning that they want to leave something behind, and are order-aligned, it means that they'll go about that goal with a generally upstanding and honest approach. If they have the same drive, but are chaos-aligned, there may be little that they won't do to ensure that they leave a mark on the world. Again, check out the Zweihander Mangosh supplement. And the game, honestly. It's a great game. So now when I create NPCs, I make sure to note what their driving principle or force is. I've started calling it their aspiration, which is the term we are using in our own game, Trove. It might be something they want to do, something they need to find. Or it might just be a higher principle or calling. It's what keeps them moving forward and doing what they want and need to do. I also give my NPCs a shorter-term goal as well, so I know what they're focused on in the near future. This can have a lot of implications to the game itself, because even if the principles of NPCs align with the PCs, their immediate goals might be in conflict. This can make things a lot more interesting, because if they might normally agree, but they can't in the moment, this can lead to the kind of interaction where two well-meaning people are on opposite sides, which can lead to solutions a lot more complex than kill the bad guy. Okay, so far we've focused a lot on incidental NPCs, and those who the PCs might interact with on an irregular basis. That second type also works well, as antagonists. I like to make my antagonist NPCs just as complex as the more neutral ones, because it pleases me to have villains with real motivations and humanity to them. What we haven't talked about yet is allied NPCs, people who are genuinely on the side of the heroes, not just the friendly ones or the ones that need rescue, but the ones who can stand side by side with the PCs. These, as you may know, can be dangerous. If an NPC is too powerful, the GM risks taking away the power of the PCs and making them feel pointless. If an NPC is too weak, they can become sort of a comedic foil and a sad sack, the butt of every joke. So it's a balance, to be sure. This is where we follow on directly from our discussion of the heroine's journey last week. The GM should, in my opinion, limit the screen presence of powerful NPCs. They can detract too much from the story at hand and risk alienating the players from their own sense of their PC's power. Introducing powerful NPCs can be very good, but in my experience, it's generally a good idea to have the powerful NPCs focused on something at their level. A powerful wizard might be focused on a threat to the multiverse. A monarch or legendary warrior might be focused on larger problems of the country and not have the time or resources to handle the threats that go to the PCs. Because we know that the progression of time can help impact realism, this means that even queens and lords don't have access to infinite time or resources to handle things. If a kingdom is under pressure from its enemies at the same time that a dragon is menacing the countryside, a group of adventurers may be just the thing to help deal with a problem that's just too much for the kingdom. So that's the spiel on powerful NPCs. What about the ones at the PC's level? This is the time when it's good to know what victory means to your player characters. 
Building up a stable of NPCs that can both help and hinder your main party can be crucial to giving them the kinds of victory that they want. A heroine-inclined PC is going to want to collect NPCs like Pokemon. They crave friends and allies, organization, and collaboration toward success. For this, developing a number of NPCs that are just below your player's power level can give them options on who they like and don't. Think about the other party members in games like Dragon Age or Baldur's Gate. There's always more than you can have in the group at any one time, and you get to pick and choose the personalities that you want to bring along. For hero-type PCs, they'll need foils. They need people around their level too, but these NPCs will need to be rescued. They'll need to be picked up by the efforts of the hero PC. They need people who are theoretically allied with their interests, but always need something from the hero, particularly in crucial moments. Something to distract the hero from their goal, something to tug them away, or a demand in exchange for their help that draws the hero into more conflicts that need solving. The key thing with NPC allies that always needs to be kept in mind is screen time. The players and their PCs should always be front and center. NPC allies should, whenever possible, be redirected to off-screen objectives and assistance. If they must all be in the same place at the same time, make sure to put them in trouble, just like you would a PC. They become random targets if you're doing random targeting. Valuable NPCs might be targeted specifically if the enemy can recognize them. If NPC allies are drawn into a conflict alongside the PCs, they are valid targets and must be treated as such by the players and the GM alike. Whenever possible, NPC allies should be relegated to a supporting role and should act according to their own self-interest. In my model, their aspiration and goal. They should have morale and not just be willing to die for the cause. Some of them might, but not every ally is going to be a friend to the bitter end. The GM will have to decide how comfortable they are with voicing a multitude of other characters on screen at any given time, and the players will need to respect those limitations. Much like the way you can only have a party of four in Dragon Age or six in Baldur's Gate, it is 100% okay for the GM to limit it to two or three NPC allies on top of the party. Or maybe even only one hanger-on, like the temporary party member system in Final Fantasy XII. These limitations have to be up to the GM's comfort level. The more that the GM is willing to create complex situations that can't just be solved by the core party, though, the more important those allies become, and the more interesting ways they can be used. A heroine's ally posse might be sent to accomplish an objective, and they'll probably do it with flying colors. A hero's ally might be sent on a similar mission, and get stuck and need to be bailed out by the hero because that's what heroes do. Bottom line, use the opportunity of allied NPCs as a way to create larger problems than the PCs can solve on their own. Vary the NPCs enough so that there are some which make staunch allies for your heroines, and some that are liabilities for your heroes. And try not to cross-pollinate those too much. This will create ample opportunities for both of your player types to get the victories they desire and make everybody more invested in the outcomes of the game. There's one more subject to cover here before we're done, and that is organizations and factions. 
humans, and by extension, other human-like beings in fictional fantasy or science fiction settings, are not content to act unilaterally. We form religions, societies, guilds, corporations, and other organizations all the time. Community is practically a compulsion for living creatures, and perhaps even more so for humans, and our fictional cousins. Organizing a game world by creating some factions, particularly if their aims and goals interact in interesting and contradictory ways, can be a way to add some additional realism and tension to the world. One of my personal favorite achievements in gaming is during the first Pathfinder game I joined with my current group a couple years back. Not content to be the only priest of vengeance in the world, as we grew in power I took the leadership feat, with my GM's blessing of course, though he may have regretted it later, and began assembling an organization, a cult if you will, with my character as the charismatic leader. I spent downtime searching out converts, I spent more time training them, and then sent them out on their own missions to find more converts and draw them to the cause. By the end of that game, I had assembled a small army of NPCs who were strong enough to assist in the final battle, and that was super cool. Player-created factions, organizations of NPCs run by players, can totally be a thing if you're up for it. A player who's interested in this is probably also willing to take on a bunch of the legwork, so that's something that a GM can support without too much extra work on their part. Let the players create the NPCs, their names, their backgrounds, and so on. If you're playing a D&D style game, have them roll up the characters. Don't take on everything yourself, OGM. Give the players some agency in that. NPC-run factions can also be helpful in guiding the movements of the greater world. I am currently working on a Stars Without Number game, and rather than reiterating the advice on factions that the game provides, and it is great, I'll encourage you to go and grab that book as well. Best part is, this one's free, and there's a lot of genre-neutral tools in there for players and GMs alike to think about when designing and improving a game world. So, that's a lot of work, right? It's true that there's a lot to think about here, but that's sort of the point of Threat Dice. Maybe there's just one thing in this episode that you want to try bringing into your games. If you're a GM, you've got lots of power to adjust the flow of the game. If you're a player and want to explore more with NPCs in your game world, decide what kind of victory your character desires, and then suggest to your GM that you might want to try exploring that. NPCs are a crucial part of our games, and one that can get overwhelming for the GM if they don't have a plan. Players, be ready to step up and help whenever you can with setting appropriate names, background ideas, and more. GMs, make sure you take copious notes, because the players are likely to remember just what kind of accent that random potion seller had three months ago, even if you've forgotten. The work is daunting, but the payoff is potentially huge. Thanks so much for joining me today. Before we go, one quick thing. If you're enjoying Threat Dice, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform, on Podchaser, or tweet us at TumbleDie. I'll read any reviews into the announcements on the next session. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time, may the road ever rise to meet you.
Threat Dice is a production of Tumbledye Games, LLC. Our intro music is What Lies Beyond, the interludes are Clockwork, and the outro music is Storm, all by Vinsvept. Check out his amazing work at youtube.com slash Vinsvept, V-I-N-D-S-V-E-P-T. Support him by picking up his music on Bandcamp. Additional music by Andre Sitkov and Andy Ray. This episode was produced and recorded by me, Kylan Wigan. Such is oft the course of deeds that move the wheels of the world. Small hands do them, because they must, while the eyes of the great are elsewhere. You can find Threat Dice on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.